What's happening, fellow food eaters? This is the Food Labels Revealed podcast with your host, Mel Weinstein, your most humble, self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 62. Well, this has been quite a challenging year for everyone, uh, the nation and the world. The subject matter of this podcast tends to cover some serious topics like the dangers of ultra-processed foods, bizarre ingredients, diet trends, health issues, and government oversight on the American food system, or lack thereof. Educational, yes, but not exactly soul-lifting. So, for this episode, I've decided to jump over to the light side and delve into some junk food trivia. I always like to hear the backstories behind how products were created, some historical tidbits, and fascinating facts. A few months ago, I came across a book called Encyclopedia of Junk Food and Fast Food, written by Andrew F. Smith, and published in 2006. Later in 2011, a revision came out called Fast Food and Junk Food, an encyclopedia of what we love to eat. I've been casually reading the first book, and it's pretty interesting in places. The book is literally an encyclopedia, starting with A topics and proceeding through to Z topics. The first entry in the book is A&W Root Beer, and the last one is Yum Brands. The book provides definitions, descriptions, history, little-known facts on hundreds of entries, just chock-full of trivial information. For today's episode, I will steal, or I really should say borrow, heavily from this book, and I'll update some along the way. So, food eaters, sit back, relax, or just do whatever you're doing and get ready to learn a bunch of trivia on junk foods and fast foods. Stuff you may find interesting, stuff you wish you never heard, and stuff you may find amusing. Let's start with the Payday Candy Bar, which got me through college in the 1970s. I loved it, probably more than my girlfriend. When stuck on campus studying, I couldn't resist a visit to the nearby vending machine, shoving change into it and watching the fall, the lovely fall, of the Payday Candy Bar towards the retrieval door the Pavlov salivation having already begun. Back then, little did I know or care that the payday was invented way back in 1932 by Frank Martoscio. It was composed of peanuts, fudge, and caramel, but the best part were the peanuts, which wrapped around the whole bar like a nutty shroud. The payday consumption was a two-phase ritual. First, all the peanuts, one by one, were eaten off the outside of the bar. Next, the naked, sugary core was devoured. Supposedly, the name of the candy bar came about when the inventors became aware that the prototype was assembled on an actual payday. In 1967, after 35 years in business, the Martoscio family sold out to Consolidated Foods Corporation, which then sold the company to Leaf Incorporated 
and it finally ended up under the control of the Hershey Company. Payday candy bars are still sold today. There is even a chocolate-coated version. Fortunately for me, the craving ended decades ago, and the Payday candy bar never, never crosses my path. When thinking of sugary treats, another fond memory of boyhood comes to mind. It's ice cream, particularly ice cream confections. One particularly mouth-watering treat was the Eskimo pie, an ice cream bar covered in chocolate. The inventor was Christian Kent Nelson, who patented the ice cream bar in 1920 when it was known as the I-Scream Bar. I-Scream Bar. He even created the jingle we all know and love from childhood. Quote, I scream, you scream, we scream for ice cream. End quote. This treat was a local sensation in Onawa, Iowa, where Nelson had his company, but it didn't take off nationally until 1921, when Nelson met Russell Stover, another ice cream maker. A partnership was formed, and Nelson licensed the sale of the ice cream bar to Stover. The name got changed to Eskimo Pie for reasons unknown. Just one year later, one million of those bars were being sold daily. As usual, competitors arose, and Nelson got deeply involved in litigation, which eventually led to bankruptcy by the end of 1923. Stover split away and established the now famous Russell Stover Candy Company. Nelson's company was taken over by Reynolds Aluminum. An odd outcome, but Reynolds was already providing aluminum foil for the packaging of the ice cream bars. In 1927, Eskimo Pies were the first trees to be sold in vending machines. The Eskimo Pie Company was acquired by the Bluebell Cremium Company in 1992. It is now marketed by Dryers, another ice cream company, and a division of Nestle. The Eskimo Pie survived 100 years until 2020 when the Dryers Company announced that the name Eskimo Pie would be changed to Edie's Pie because of its derogatory connection to Native Americans. The Edie part of the name was a tribute to Joseph Edie, one of the founders of Dryers. Let's talk root beer. A&W was my favorite root beer soda as a kid. Hires and Bark came in second and third. The A&W Company was started way back in 1919 by Roy Allen, a property developer. He bought a root beer recipe from a pharmacist and opened a stand in Lodi, California. He sold frosty mugs of root beer for a nickel. The best way, take my word for it, to drink root beer is in a frosty mug. In expanding the business... Roy Allen partnered with Frank Wright, one of his employees, and that's where the A&W name came from. Allen, A for Allen, plus W for Wright. 
Later, Roy Allen bought out his partner and started one of the first franchised fast food chains in the country. The company is also credited with the first use of car hops. Anybody remember car hops out there? Well, if you don't, uh, I suggest watching the movie American Graffiti. During the 1950s, the company was sold to Gene Hertz, who formed the A&W Root Beer Company. The company has changed hands many times over the years. Here's just a short list of the acquisition trail. Sold to the J. Hungerford Smith Company in 1960, transferred to the United Fruit Company in 1963, which then became the United Brands Company. Then the name got changed to A&W International in 1971. In 1978, it morphed into A&W Restaurants Incorporated. In 1993, it merged with Cadbury Beverages Incorporated under Dr. Pepper 7-Up Division. In 1994, Sagittarius Acquisitions Incorporated bought it. And then in 1999, that company merged with Long John Silvers to form Yorkshire Global Restaurants. In 2002, it was acquired by Tricon Global Restaurants, which later became Yum! Brands Incorporated. And finally, in 2011, it was sold to a great American brand company where it resides today. In the world of business, the A&W company sounds like a hot potato. Well, food eaters, next, uh, how can you go wrong with nougat, chocolate, and nuts. A perfect combination for a junk food addict like myself at the age of 12. In 1920, Otto Schneering of the Curtis Candy Company of Chicago reformulated an old candy cake bar. That's candy with a K and cake with a K reformulated it into a new one composed of chocolate-flavored nuggets smothered in compound chocolate and peanuts. It was called the Baby Ruth Candy Bar, which most people, including myself, thought it was named after the famous baseball player Babe Ruth. It was not. By 1926, the Baby Ruth was the most popular American candy bar with $1 million in sales. But a controversy arose when Babe Ruth, the baseball player, thought that his name had been misappropriated and really he should be getting royalties. So, to cash in on the popularity of the Baby Ruth bar, Babe Ruth started his own company, which was called the George H. Ruth Candy Company. He bankrolled the creation of a similar candy bar called the Babe Ruth Home Run Bar. The Curtis Candy Company got pissed because of that and sued for copyright infringement, claiming that their bar had nothing to do with the baseball playing Babe Ruth. They said that the candy bar was named after President Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth who died of diphtheria in 1904 at the age of 12. Of course, Cleveland's daughter was not a baby when she died, and she passed 16 years earlier before the bar became commercialized. However, 
the Curtis Candy Company prevailed in court. So the Babe Ruth Home Run Bar, which sounded so similar to the Baby Ruth Candy Bar, had to cease production. Unfortunately, Babe Ruth struck out. After changing hands a few times, as is usually the case, the little fish got eaten by bigger fishes. The Curtis Candy Company eventually became a subsidiary of the mega company, the Nestle Food Corporation. Turning our attention to roast beef in fast food restaurants. Now that used to be a big deal in the United States back in the late part of the 20th century. If I had a little extra money or wanted to impress a girlfriend, I went to a roast beef restaurant. There, right behind the front counter and right before your very eyes, you could watch some burly guy finally cutting a huge slab of roast beef with a bright metal slicing machine. Do you remember the first roast beef chain? Well, just keep listening. The restaurant was founded in 1949 by the Raffle Brothers, Forrest and Leroy, in Youngstown, Ohio. It was originally called Big Tex, but since that name was already taken, the brothers decided to name it Arby's, based on the phonetic spelling of the R and B in Raffle Brothers. Get it? R-B. Although founded in Ohio, the restaurants were thematically designed to represent the Old West. They found a niche in the fast food industry because price-wise and decor-wise, they were more upscale than the hamburger joints. Here is the Arby's lineage. In 1976, Arby's was purchased by Royal Crown Cola. RC took over RB. Then, in 1984, the DWC Corporation took over RC Kohler, and DWC became Triarch Companies. Arby's then was spun off to the RTM Restaurant Group. In 2008, Arby's merged with Wendy's to become the Wendy's Arby's Group Incorporated. In 2011, the Rourke Capital Group acquired Arby's. Then, finally, thank goodness, in 2017, Arby's acquired Buffalo Wild Wings, then changed its name from Arby's Restaurant Group to Inspire Brands. Okay, let's get back to candy bars. There, there were very few candy bars in my childhood that I didn't ravage. But there was one that I didn't think much of at all. It was the Clark Bar. If someone handed me a Clark Bar, I would actually refuse it. Didn't like its taste or its mouthfeel. Turns out that the Clark Bar is one of the oldest American candy bars invented in 1917 by, you guessed it, David Clark of the D.L. Clark Company of Pittsburgh. It was composed of a crispy peanut butter and taffy or caramel center coated with milk chocolate. The Clark Bar was the first American combination candy bar to achieve national acclaim. 
1955, the company was sold to Beatrice Foods Company, then split off to Leaf Incorporated. Later, beloved by the city it was founded in, the Clark Company was acquired by the Pittsburgh Food and Beverage Company. After bankruptcy in 1995, Jim Clister purchased Clark Bar and renamed it Clark Bar America. After that company went bankrupt in 1999, it was sold to the New England Confectionery Company, or sometimes called NECCO, N-E-C-C-O. After still another failure, it was sold to Roundhill Investments, LLC. It eventually landed in the hands of the Boyer Candy Company, makers of Mallow Cup, but it has yet to make a comeback. And that's fine with me. Hey, if if you were a kid in America, you no doubt at some point in your young life ate goldfish crackers. The light, orange, tasty, cheddar cheese flavored crackers first manufactured in 1962 by the Pepperidge Farm Company, a subsidiary of the Campbell's Soup Company. The snack was invented by Oscar Cambly, a Swiss cookie manufacturer in 1958. It was a healthier cracker than other snacks of its day, since those crackers were baked, not fried. Goldfish crackers were exceedingly popular, so other companies tried to mimic them. Nabisco, in the late 1990s, tried selling a look-alike product called Cat Dog Crackers, with crackers shaped like other animals. They were then sued by Pepperidge Farm, who won their case in 1999. In 2004, $85 85000000000 goldfish crackers were consumed per year. That's an average of 3000 per second in the year 2004. Over many years, various new flavors of the crackers were created, including barbecue, fudge brownie, sesame, ranch, and salt and vinegar. The most exciting sugary snack of my childhood was Cracker Jack, a sticky caramel corn confection containing peanuts, and it was truly addictive. Even more exciting was the surprise gift in each box. This was a clever, cheap marketing tool on the part of the company, but those little charms, figurines, and toys captivated kids and made them really want that product. It certainly worked on me. The origin of Cracker Jack dates way back, way back to the 1870s. Frederick and Louis Ruckheim were German immigrants who made their living selling popcorn on the streets of Chicago. They experimented with different popcorn concoctions. Around 1893, they had developed the first Cracker Jack product composed of popcorn, molasses, and peanuts. It really caught on when the brothers were able to sell it at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. The snack soon became a hit and was sold at circuses, fairs, and sporting events. By 1913, because of extensive advertising, Cracker Jack was the world's best-selling commercial confection. In 1916, 
The corporate icon used on the packaging was a little sailor boy and his dog. Real cute. Legend has it that the kid was Frederick Ruckheim's grandson, Robert, pictured with his beloved dog, Bingo. Sadly, the boy died of pneumonia shortly after the new packaging was introduced. Sales of Cracker Jack began to decline as other companies got into the business. In 1997, Cracker Jack was sold to Frito-Lay, a subsidiary of PepsiCo. Nowadays, the Cracker Jack novelty toys still get attention as collectors purchase and sell them at auction sites like eBay. Now, sometimes, because they are so different from what already exists, there are food companies that come into the marketplace and cause paradigm shifts. Ben & Jerry's was one such company. It was a rags-to-riches story that rocked the commercial ice cream world. In the late 1970s, with no background in the food industry, Ben Cohn and Jerry Greenfield took a correspondence class in ice cream making from Penn State University. They invested $12,000 to convert a former gas station into an ice cream manufacturing plant. Their first shop was opened in South Burlington, Vermont in 1978. They became wildly popular and famous for introducing unusual flavors accompanied by bizarre names. They also tailored their products as natural and earth-friendly. The company proclaimed themselves as socially conscious. Within eight years, Ben & Jerry's were challenging large, well-established ice cream companies. Although their names are still on the product, however, Cone and Greenfield lost ownership of the company. In 2000, it was sold to the conglomerate Unilever, a multinational food giant. Have you ever dug deep into your wallet and purchased Haagen-Dazs ice cream? Did you think it was extra special since it had origins in Old World Denmark? If you did have that thought, you were duped just like me. The creator was Ruben Mattis, a Polish immigrant who, in the 1930s, sold ice cream products from a horse-drawn cart in New York City. After World War II, he was unable to compete with the big players like Breyers and Bordens, so he decided to focus on premium ice cream that was made without preservatives and other additives. He was hoping that his customers would pay more for quality ice cream. Mattis started Haagen-Dazs in 1960 using a European name that would evoke images of Denmark, which he thought would appeal to Americans' exclusivity. The higher-end ice cream caught on, and retail shops were eventually opened on the East Coast. Later, in 1983, with its popularity on the rise, the brand was sold to Pillsbury. By 2005, Haagen-Dazs ice cream was sold in 54 countries. The brand eventually was acquired by Nestle, which sold it under the Dryers line. In 2016, Nestle sold Dryers to Freneri, a joint venture of Nestle and PAI Partners. Well, like many kids, Jell-O 
was a significant part of my family's meals in the 1950s and 1960s. And, you know, Jell-O officially is spelled J-E-L-L-O, which I never really realized because I just thought it was J-E-L-L-O. So we'll set the record straight there. Now, I actually loved Jell-O. I, I liked the bright colors, the flavors, the shapes, the way it wobbled and bobbed, and how it could encapsulate pretty much anything you wanted to throw in it. Little did I know that Jell-O was composed of gelatin, an animal protein that makes up connective tissue in skin, tendons, ligaments, and bones. The hides and bones of animals, usually cows and pigs, are boiled, dried, chemically treated, and then filtered to extract the collagen, which then is dried, ground into a powder, and sifted to produce the final product. Sounds nasty when you think about it. The formula for making gelatin was patented in 1890 by Charles B. Knox, and his brand of gelatin is still available today. The formula was purchased by Frank Woodward, owner of the Genesee Pure Food Company. He introduced Jell-O to the American public in 1900. Following a major marketing campaign, the product caught on, and by 1902, Jell-O sales reached a quarter million dollars. In 1923, Genesee became the Jell-O company. But in 1925, it was sold to the Postum Cereal Company, which later became the General Foods Corporation. And that later merged with Kraft Foods in 1989. By 2011, over 420 million boxes of Jell-O were sold. And as of 2016... Over 110 products are sold under the Jell-O name. To celebrate the history of this American treat, there's a Jell-O museum in Leroy, New York, which is the site of the original manufacturing company. Let's talk pizza. As a teenager, it was a go-to food for me. The local family-owned restaurants were the best. But of the chain restaurants, I like Pizza Hut the most. But the pizza company with the most interesting history is Little Caesars. Mike Illich was an immigrant from Yugoslavia and grew up in Detroit in the 1940s. He started Little Caesars Pizzeria in a strip mall in Garden City, Michigan in 1959. The company took off and today ranks third among pizza chains behind Pizza Hut and Domino's. Also, amazingly, unlike the other food companies I've talked about, it remains a family-owned and operated company. Mike Illich became a very successful businessman and eventually purchased the Detroit Red Wings hockey team and the Detroit Tigers baseball team. In 2005, he was included in Forbes magazine's list of the 400 wealthiest Americans. From poor immigrant to American billionaire, Mike Illich achieved the American dream. Mike Illich died in 2017 at the age of 87. I don't even want to think about 
how many lifesavers I've eaten during my life. It's got to be in the thousands or tens of thousands. Just one of many reasons why my teeth have not fared well after the age of 50. But those candies were so good at the time I was eating them. I, I liked unwrapping the foil or wax-lined paper roll and pushing out one piece at a time, sometimes grabbing them with my teeth, sometimes invariably dropping one on the floor, then quickly grabbing it and placing it in my mouth before anyone could see. Lifesavers were the creation of Clarence Crane, a chocolatier in Cleveland, Ohio, who was looking to make a candy that did not melt in the heat of summer. In 2012, he researched hard candy made from sugar and flavorings and figured out how to manufacture candy pieces using a pill-making machine, as, as was used in the pharmaceutical industry. The machine was adapted to produce round candies with a hole in the middle. They looked like the life-saving floats used on ships, so he named them accordingly. In 2013, he sold the manufacturing rights to Edward Noble, the owner of the Mint Products Company of New York, which made peppermint-flavored candy. Noble popularized lifesavers by stocking taverns with them since they covered up the alcoholic breath of drinkers. Customers purchased the candy as they were leaving the bars, so they are considered the first impulse food item. In the 1920s, fruit-flavored lifesavers were introduced. In 1956, Lifesaver Candies acquired the Beechnut Company. Then both of those companies were sold to Nabisco. In 2004, it again got sold to the Wrigley Company, where it resides today. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed researching it. Let me know if you want to see or hear more of this topic, because there's a lot more junk food trivia out there to explore. Just listen for the show's email address coming up in a minute, and shoot me a note. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating and a review at the iTunes store. That will help spread the word about this show. If you have an Apple smartphone, bring up the podcast library and select the Food Labels Revealed podcast. Scroll to the bottom until you see Ratings and Reviews then click on Write a Review. If you don't have a streaming device, you can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And I can be reached at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Again, that's food labels revealed, all one string, at gmail.com. Until later, remember this if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Scheming, which is composed by Kevin McLeod.